Hello and welcome to episode seven of the HD Lockdown Pod. Uh, I'm Mr. Eichelstam and today I'm pleased to say that I'm joined by Mr. Lawton. Hi there everyone, hope you're all okay. Having good weeks out there. Yeah, I'm not too bad. Uh, what have you been uh, up to this week during the kind of slightly eased uh, lockdown? I haven't actually taken advantage of this yet. I feel like I'm missing out, but uh, I may do over the weekend, may travel back home towards Stoke-on-Trent and go for a walk with uh, the doggy and my mum and stuff like that. Obviously, it's a social distance, but uh, it should be nice. It should be a different weekend. Just to, just to clarify on the updated regulations by um, Senor Johnson, um, does the dog count as a member of another household? Um, not in this case, I believe. I think it should be fine. I listen to Five Live every morning, and the amount of different scenarios I've heard with regards to these rules has been ridiculous. And I think I'll be okay with the dog. In many you. ways, you're almost better off to stay indoors, uh, just in case uh, you fall foul of the of the many uh, regulations, aren't you? But um, well, uh, for those of us with a, a fairer skin, Mister Eichelstam, it's actually probably more more worthwhile to stay indoors and make sure that I don't get sunburned. Um, being allowed to go out more often now is uh, probably more of a risk to my health than uh, anything else. Different rules for the fairer skinned and the follically challenged, I think. That's what Mr. Johnson was trying to get across on Monday night. Um, I'm also joined, of course, uh, as ever by Mr. Patterson. Um, how is lockdown treating you, sir? Yeah, not bad. Not bad. I'm getting a bit sick of it now. Um, we had a random cat came into our house a few days ago, which has been the highlight of my week. And he hung out for a few hours, maybe. Called him Mr. Drippy Nose because he had a bit of a drippy nose. That was that highlight of my week. Well, the thing is, you've got to take what you can get at this stage. We are like um, six, seven, eight weeks in or whatever it is. I've lost track now, I think, of how long we've been under lockdown. Um, not much has changed for me this week. I'm starting to dabble with the prospect of being able to sort of push back at the restrictions. Uh, went for the first kind of drive out yesterday beyond kind of the, um, well, for no particular reason other than just to kind of uh, get out from beyond our kind of local borders. Um, but that's about it, really. I should say, of course, we are uh, missing one member of our HD lockdown team uh, in terms of being uh, with us live, but I imagine he will be joining us later for a little bit of language liaisons. Uh, Mr. DeSalvo will be here. Um, yeah, as I said, the running order today, um, Mysterious Country returns, but this time it'll just be two people fighting for the crown. Uh, Mr. DeSalvo, who's not been the most successful in recent weeks, as I think running scared at the moment. You could almost call this week a Champions League special. Um, also, we're talking about the Spanish Armada in uh, the history section, considering why England were successful, uh, why the Spanish ultimately lost uh, against, against the English uh, during, in 1588. Um, the 92nd challenge will see Mr. Lawton attempt to decipher the life and times of Charles Lindbergh, all-American hero, or was he? Um, in Geography Corner, we will be talking about sustainable development and dependency theory. And language liaisons this week, Mr. DeSalvo will be popping in for a chat, uh, talking about French and Spanish role models. A little word this week, just to remind us about uh, the upcoming or the continuing hopeful success of the HD lockdown quiz, Mr. Lawton. Yeah, that's right, Mr. Ecclestone. Uh, the HD lockdown quiz went on again last Sunday. We had a, another champion, well, uh, another different champion, I should say. Um, we've had, now had champions from year 11 with Hannah. We've had a graduate of the Very Humanities Department win one week with Lucy. And then last week, we had our first year 10 with it, with uh, Sarah Washington, or otherwise known as Swashington. 
for geographical processes um, win last week. And it was really good. The numbers uh, remained in the 30s, and uh, well, 20s to 30s, and you're more than welcome to join in uh, this weekend. Um, it'll be back at its original time of 7 p.m. after it was mo moved because of uh, Mr. Johnson's update at 7 last weekend. So uh, 7 p.m. this Sunday, join us. Right, so that brings us to the end um, of part one. We'll be back in a few moments with part two. Okay, welcome back to uh, part two. And it's that time again, it's Mysterious Country. I'm using random data, using varied data. All random facts, don't judge me. You can guess it when it's your time. I, I, I said, ooh, Mysterious Country. No, I can't stop until you are right. Hi everybody, welcome back to Mysterious Country. Um, this week we are sticking by the same rules that we stick by every week. Uh, the contestants are going to get uh, seven clues for a mysterious country. And at the end of each clue it's a round. And on that round they're allowed to have a guess by saying their name and grabbing my attention. So without further ado, let's get underway. Uh, mysterious Country number one. This is where the abominable snowman, abominable, yes, abominable snowman, the Yeti, hails from. Uh, easy for you to say, sir. Um, Ike. Hackleston. Sweden. Incorrect. Pat. Patterson. India. Incorrect. Okay. Number two. Um, it's common practice here. Uh, to clean homes with cow manure and water. It's common practice here to clean homes with cow manure and water. Ike. Eichelstrom. If it's not Stoke-on-Trent, then I could only... Stoke-on-Trent isn't a country recognised by the United Nations. I've got to remind you of these rules every week. I'm sorry about that, guys. Uh, they're very poor at this. The Republic of Stoke-on-Trent. Uh, no, it, it is. It could well be... Fair. Let's try Finland. We always go for a bit of Finland. Incorrect. Pat. Patterson. Uh, Nepal. Ooh. Patterson wins around. Oh! Well done, Mr. Patterson. Himalayas. Yeah, he was straight yeah. in there. Well done. So uh, the next clue was going to be Hinduism is the main religion. It's got significant potential for hydroelectric power. Yet it doesn't utilize this because it's a mountainous region. Um, the next clue, actually, I probably should have gone with earlier, but uh, marijuana grows everywhere here. It's often found in grown in ditches, just gardens, everywhere. It's not illegal, but it's not also really used by the country. It just sprouts really well. You, you there. say that marijuana grows there, and um, I suppose they're used to being relatively high, aren't they? So, you know. Oh, oh but I'm um, chum. Uh, and um, in, the, in the country, it's actually of Nepal. It's uh, 2072 because of the calendar they use. Uh, and uh, it's one of the two countries in the world without a rectangular flag. What is the other country? Bhutan. Oh, no, it's a lot closer Switzerland. to Switzerland. Switzerland, yes, with a square flag. Well done, Mr. Patterson. So um, let's move on. Mysterious country number two. This country's capital shares the line of latitude with Edmonton in Canada. Ike, I'll, I'll, I'll try Sweden again. Incorrect. Pat. Patterson. Ireland. Patterson wins. No way! 
I, I, have, I have allowed Ireland as well and said the Republic of Ireland. Uh, remember, guys, that Ireland is a geographical body, really, instead of um, that. But it would have been very, very harsh, I think, for it to go, you didn't say the Republic of. Well, uh, the Congo speaks, speaks otherwise. There isn't another country, though, called Ireland, where there is another place called Congo. Uh, that's that's different. Um, those people in Northern Ireland would like me to make that clear. Uh, right. Also, it shares uh, the line of latitude with Edmonton, uh, Canada, but also Stoke-on-Trent at 53 degrees north. It's really just recently hit a, a historical, historically significant milestone with its population of 4.7 million, which is why historians, why is that historically significant that they've reached 4.7 million now? It's finally recovered from the pre-famine, or basically what the population was before the potato famine. Yeah, absolutely spot on. Yeah, it is indeed. Um, the guillotine was used here before France. Since 2009, it's been illegal to be drunk in public. The patron saint of this country was born in Wales uh, and was taken by a pirate called Neil to the island of Ireland. Um, it's a uh, president actually has extremely little power. Do we know how to pronounce the name of the actual person with the power in the, in uh, the Republic of Ireland? Is it the Taoiseach? Yeah, the Taoiseach. Yeah. And, um, the one that would have had Mr. Eichelstam win any if it had got to this point, but it, it's a country who have won the Eurovision more times than any other. And I think he would have gone straight in there with Ireland. Well, talking of Eurovision, it is of course Eurovision weekend this week for all those people that are, uh, would have been gearing up for the excitement. Um, I myself will be joining some of my friends to watch um, a live stream of the 2000, not a live stream, sorry, a stream of the 2003 Eurovision, where the UK uh, famously scored nil point with Gemini uh, for the first time, the, the act you may recall. But yeah, we're going to be watching Eurovision and pretending as though it's happening. Wasn't that a, a political reaction to us going to war in Iraq? <laughs> I think well, it was the beginning of that of that move towards yeah. a lot of countries essentially uh, voting against us because they just don't like us. And I think Brexit won't won't particularly help uh, that. Okay, so it's two 0 to Patterson. Patterson is this week's champion, but let's just play at the last country anyway. It's the first time we've had this situation. Congratulations, Mr. Patterson here. And this is to see whether we can get a late consolation goal for Michael Stim. So um, this country's major religion is Islam. Ike, um, Iran. Incorrect. Pat. Patterson. Uh, Afghanistan. Incorrect. I, I left that one quite quite varied. Um, this country can easily be split up into seven main areas. Easily be split up into seven main areas. Well, I mean, I suppose any country could. Well, no. Yep. So that's the significant significance of the seven there. There's a reason for that. Yeah. Yeah, um, I can't tell you what these areas are called because it would give it away massively. No, it's okay. I'll, I'll I'll wait for the next clue. I think unless Patterson wants to jump in. No, pass. Um, this country has a federal presidential elected monarchy. It is neither constitutionally a monarchy or a republic. Oh, it, um, Ike, it's the United Arab Emirates. Eichelstam gets this point. He gets a consolation goal late on there. 2-1 to Eichelstam. Um, yeah, it's uh, home of the World Islands. Um, they're an island for each country. It's got um, the world's first zero-waste carbon-free car-free city. 
in 2006, Mazdar City, that was established. The Falcon's a national bird, and it's used to actually hunt pigeons so that they don't poo on the buildings. And it has the world's largest building, the Burj Khalifa. Fantastic stuff. So, yeah, well done, Mr. Patterson. Congratulations. You've retained you. your once again. Um, I am spitting feathers here, most definitely. We'll see whether we come back next week and Patterson can go for his three-peat. Uh, right, that brings us to the end of another uh, thrilling, mysterious country. Ooh, mysterious country. No, I can't stop until you are right. Okay, that brings us to the end of part two. We'll return in just a few seconds with part three. Okay, welcome back to part three. It's that time for a little bit of history. And this week, uh, we are focusing on um, the topic that year 10 historians and GCSE historians will be looking at as part of their remote learning. Now, last week, um, all of you should have done a little bit on why Spain and England uh, during the Elizabethan era were in a state of tension and conflict. And that was that building conflict, essentially. This week, we're going to be looking at the actual Spanish Armada itself. When Spain attempts to invade England and to uh, take over the country, to replace or to remove, to overthrow Elizabeth and to change England's religion and uh, many more things besides. Uh, it was a hugely pivotal moment in this nation's history, potentially one of the greatest threats that this nation has ever, ever faced. Um, and uh, this, this nation has been invaded or attempted to be invaded a few times before and since, but it was certainly when the future of England was on a knife edge. Now, the brief context for this, and those of you that have done last week's work will know, that there was this brewing conflict between England and Spain, between Philip II, who was the King of Spain, and uh, Elizabeth I of England. Now, it all kind of stems back a little bit to the fact that Philip wanted to marry Elizabeth initially when she became queen, and he was swiftly rejected. Uh, there is also simmering tensions behind um, piracy, essentially, uh, because Francis Drake, the renowned English privateer, or pirate, depending on how you want to look at it, uh, was known for looting Spanish ships and uh, singeing the Spanish beard, I think that's been referred to before. Um, so the idea was that, yeah, Drake was not uh, winning friends uh, in, in Spain and uh, Elizabeth I knighted him for his services to the, to the kingdom, certainly um, putting a few Spanish noses out of joint. There were the ongoing religious tensions, the fact that, of course, England was a Protestant nation um, and uh, Spain was a, a Catholic nation. Those tensions grew with the kind of the restrictions that were put in place in the 1570s and 80s by Elizabeth against Catholics on, on their movement and on their, their acts of worship. There was also trouble brewing in the Spanish Netherlands. Now, we will go into that a bit more later when we get to the Armada itself. But Spain at this time had full control pretty much over the Netherlands, which is uh, sometimes referred to as Holland today, but is also referred to as the Kingdom of the Netherlands uh, in Northern Europe. Now, the Spanish Netherlands were, the people who lived there were largely Protestant, um, but of course, Philip II, the Spanish, were Catholics, and they'd been trying to kind of keep control of this region, but there's been a lot of rebellion and revolt in this part of the world, and Elizabeth has been uh, stoking the flames of the Spanish tension and conflict by kind of helping out the Dutch rebels at times against their Spanish uh, rulers, which has not gone down too well. And then, in 1587, Mary, Queen of Scots, um, the Catholic Queen of Scotland or former Queen of Scotland, was executed at the hands of Elizabeth, as we were discussed in a previous podcast. 
Now, some people see this as the tipping point and the thing that makes Philip go and invade England. How I would, would question that ever so slightly because, let's be honest, it takes a while to launch an armada. It takes a while to build the ships and to get the, the plans together. Mary was, was killed in 1587. Spain invade in 1588. It was kind of already in the works before then, largely kind of triggered by Elizabeth's involvement in, in the Netherlands. Spain basically wanted to shut England up and prevent them from being a threat anymore. But certainly the execution of Mary does not win England any friends and kind of gets the Pope also to give like the backing and the blessing to the Spanish invasion. England knew it was coming. Um, they just didn't know when exactly. They didn't know where exactly it would come from, but they knew that an invasion was potentially imminent. Um, their spies in Spain could see them hammering away at hundreds of ships. You can't kind of hide an armada. So, you know, the English knew something was in the offing. The Spanish plan essentially was to sail from Spain under the command of a gentleman by the name of the Duke of Medina Sidonia, and we'll talk more about him later, along the French coast, uh, along the channel to Calais, or to kind of northern Europe, where they were planning on picking up, essentially they were like a huge taxi service, they were planning on picking up around about 30,000 or so uh, extra soldiers uh, in the Spanish Netherlands or in kind of northern uh, France or so, where they were going to pick up these extra troops and then launch a land invasion of England. The hope was that English Catholics would rise up, leading to the overthrow and capture of Elizabeth. This was never meant to be, the plan was never meant to be a sea battle. They didn't really want to have to engage too much in any kind of naval warfare. They wanted to land and invade England and to occupy England. And to do that, they needed a huge amount of soldiers. There were 130 ships, 8,000 sailors on those ships, but interestingly, 18,000 soldiers. Those soldiers were meant to do the business when they got to England. England, on the other hand, actually had more ships, but they were significantly outgunned. They didn't have the same number of cannon as the Spanish, but they had a lot more ships, but they were faster and they were smaller, so they could like sort of buzz around them almost. England were ready to a certain degree. They'd, they built signal uh, stations with great beacon fires. And I think it's quite an iconic image almost, or an incredible uh, imagery to imagine uh, these kind of signal fires being built along the south coast all the way from kind of Devon and Cornwall to London and if you've ever seen the Lord of the Rings the return of the king you'll kind of uh, you'll know a famous scene where Gondor calls for aid and sends to the kingdom of Rohan to send their troops to help them. England had essentially got these kind of line of beacons uh, along the coast so that as soon as the Spanish were sighted arriving in the English Channel that they could send word to uh, to the capital to Elizabeth that the Spanish were there, that the threat was coming. They were first sighted on the, um, in the 19th of July. The Spanish proceeded up the channel in a, uh, an incredibly strong defensive crescent formation, like a crescent moon. And you'll be able to see some images of this in your online learning from like the textbooks and bits and pieces like that. They were there to protect the supply ships because remember, they didn't want to fight a naval battle. They wanted to get to the other end of the channel to Calais to pick up their extra troops. So they were going along in a defensive formation that would mean that the English would find it really hard to actually get to the Spanish ships, get close enough to be able to stop them. The Spanish were protecting their supply ships, protecting their soldiers. Um, and sort of nudging themselves along the channel. They wanted initially to anchor um, around the Isle of Wight in the Solent near like Southampton, Portsmouth, and wait uh, for word essentially, wait for communication with the 30,000 troops that were waiting supposedly uh, to be picked up. They wanted to know that they were ready. So they were gonna anchor in the Solent in this defensive formation to hold, and whilst the English are gonna buzzing around them. 
But a counterattack from Francis Drake and um, John Howard, uh, who were the leaders of the kind of English assault, drove them off. And uh, they had to then force them, force them to head down the channel towards Calais, towards the 30,000 soldiers that they were planning to pick up. But they didn't know whether they were going to be ready or not. And as time would tell, by the 27th of July, when they arrived just off, off the coast in Calais, they found that essentially their army that they were hoping to pick up was not ready for them. In fact, there were maybe not as many as the 30,000 they'd hoped for. Some of them had actually died due to disease. Um, they were not kind of equipped and ready to go so they could be taken out on transports to get onto the Spanish ships. It was a bit of a nightmare, really. And the Spanish found themselves like sitting ducks. But whilst they still remained in their crescent formation, they still looked pretty strong. The English couldn't find a way to break them apart. They couldn't find a way to get in amongst them, essentially, to stop the Spanish from collecting any troops that they were going to take with them and then transporting them to England. But midnight of the 28th of July, Francis Drake, the so-called pirate, the English naval hero, the first man to circumnavigate, first British or sorry, English man to circumnavigate the globe, he decides to send fire ships. These are unmanned uh, ships that have been set alight and using the wind to send to blow them in towards the Spanish tight crescent formation. And it causes chaos. The armada scatters. They're, they're, they're flying, they're, they're sailing in uh, left, right and centre. They have to up the anchors very quickly. The Duke of Medina Sidonia, who's been put in charge of this, uh, of this particular task by Philip of Spain, has never actually had any major naval experience uh, before. He's not commanded a, a naval battle. Um, some people have even alleged that he'd possibly never even been aboard a boat before, though I think that's probably a bit far-fetched. He was supposedly below deck, not feeling very well at this time, starting to find it very, very difficult. And what ensues the next day is the Battle of Graveline, where Howard and Drake go in for the kill. The Spanish ships that are slower and heavier because they were planning an invasion could not reload as quickly as the English as well. They weren't designed for close combat battle. Uh, they wanted to fight by, uh, by boarding, if they could, by swinging the ropes, essentially the soldiers, by boarding one ship to another. But English ships were faster and they moved in around them, causing carnage. Elizabeth at this time, or actually, you know, if, if you kind of around about this time, she was on the, on the, on the English coast at Tilbury. And uh, she is kind of believing that an invasion could still be imminent. She doesn't know for definite what's happening out in the English Channel. Remember, of course, communication at this time was nowhere near as quick as it is today. And she gives her famous speech, known as the sort of the Tilbury speech. And she says, I am come amongst you as you see at this time, not for my recreation and disport, but being resolved in the midst and heat of battle to live or die amongst you all to lay down for my God and for my kingdoms and for my people, my honour and my blood, even in the dust. I know I have the body of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king, and a king of England too. And think foul scorn that Palmer or Spain or any prince of Europe should dare to invade the borders of my realm, for which rather than any dishonour should grow by me, I myself will take up arms. Now, maybe those words are somewhat mythologized and did she say them, didn't she say them? Well, I kind of hope she did because they're really cool things to say. And um, it's one of those kind of bits of history that really gets the hairs on the back of your neck standing up, I think. And um, Elizabeth, you know, she wasn't fighting on the boats herself, but she was very much kind of a, a part of a, um, England's response to, to the Spanish inv potential invasion. The wind changed after the, uh, literally, the wind changed after the battle of, uh, within the Battle of Graveline and forced the Spanish to flee. 
uh, out into the North Sea uh, with the English chasing at their tail, pursued by English soldiers, uh, sorry, English sailors, English boats by Howard and Drake and so on, into the North Sea, up the kind of English uh, East Coast towards Scotland. The Spanish were forced to sail around Scotland and Ireland. There were shipwrecks, there was disease, there was all kinds of devastation. Some of them ended up prisoners and ransomed, um, starving to death in Ireland. Only 67 ships returned out of the original 130 or so to Spain. It was a disaster for the Spanish Navy. It was a disaster for Philip II of Spain. And it was, for many, one of England's finest hours, and particularly Elizabeth's finest hour, and forms part of this kind of image of Gloriana of England's golden age under Queen Elizabeth I. Philip II learned of the results of the expedition and he declared, I sent the armada against men, not God's winds and waves. You know, so Philip recognising almost that uh, maybe God wasn't actually possibly on his side uh, after all in this one. To sum up, why did England win? Why did England come out victorious against one of the greatest, most wealthiest, most powerful uh, kingdoms on earth? The expertise of their commanders, Drake and Howard against the, the maybe the lack of kind of experience of Medina Sidonia. The weather, the wind in the channel, that blew the Spanish out into the North Sea. The tactics of Drake, the fire ships that broke apart the crescent formation of the Spanish. Maybe the ship design, um, the, you know, the big uh, slow ships of the Spanish that were not really designed for a naval battle, but were designed for one mission alone, which was to invade England and to pick up their extra troops, which of course, could be seen as another reason. The Spanish plan, the mistakes, the tactics that they employed, whilst almost, almost being successful, but because of that lack of communication, because they didn't know whether their troops were going to be ready to be picked up, they were sitting ducks when the English decided to turn against them. So from just listening and not being a historian, it sounds like a, one of the biggest factors that was at play there was the geography. Geography wins again, where the, the fact that we're an island country, the fact that they had to travel there via ship, gives us a natural defense and then the meteorology the weather turning the tides uh, pardon the pun there for being at sea but um, the fact that this occurred is really fortunate more than anything what time of the year was it when the armada was actually originally in when like the the wind changed direction what time of the year was it It was july when they arrived so they, they they i guess they were going for when it would be most in their opinion most temperate i suppose and most yeah the, the calmest period uh, this sort of battle, if they were to come there, how long would it, would they expect it to carry out some sort of siege or were they just looking to land? What, what well, were they planning on doing? was to be able to, to um, use their big guns, I suppose, to be able to fend off the English long enough so they could land their troops on English soil. And, you know, if they were able to land that number of troops in England, it was almost like we'd be suffocated essentially by that, you know, we, we couldn't get out and there'd be too many of them and they could easily overrun and take the capital and hold it. And their belief as well was that the English Catholics would rise up. And if the English Catholics rose up, then it was a, basically a done deal. Now, it would appear that that was not going to happen because there was no kind of real English Catholic revolt, revolution attempt of anyone trying to, because obviously if they decided to have a go at the, you know, Elizabeth's government at the same time as they're trying to fend off a Spanish attack, a Spanish invasion in the channel, that would split their forces. It would make it really, really difficult, but that didn't happen. So okay. you know, Elizabeth benefited there. Maybe it shows that actually there was a hell of a lot more support for Elizabeth than some people might have thought at the time. Yeah, that brings us to the end of our discussion on the Spanish Armada and, and why the Spanish ultimately lost 
and why it was maybe Elizabeth's finest hour. Now we are going to come back with, in a moment with uh, the 92nd challenge. How long do we have? How long do we have? 90. How long do we have? 90. How long do we need? How long do we need? 90. 90. How long do we have? How long do we have? 90 seconds. 90 seconds. What a challenge. What a challenge. So this week on the 92nd challenge, uh, Mr. Lawton uh, has been uh, the, the gauntlet has been laid down. Uh, it's, it's part of the history section this week. So he's going to be given 90 seconds to give us as whatever he can uh, about the life and times of uh, the all-American hero, or was he, Charles Lindbergh. Um, Mr. Lawton, are you prepared? Are you ready to go? Um, I'm prepared as I'll ever be. Mr. Lawton, you have. 90 seconds to talk about Charles Lindbergh. One, two, three, go. So Charles Lindbergh was an American, born in 1902, died in 1974, lived to the ripe old age of 72. He's a college dropout, so Kanye West would be a big fan. He went to the University of Wisconsin for two years before then he decided, you know what, I'm going to train and become a pilot. He became a barnstormer to begin with which means he was an acrobat, he was a wing walker on aeroplanes. And then after he'd done that for a few years, he decided to join the army and became a postal pilot. He was literally running planes around to deliver posts for the army, that was it. And then he saw a competition come along and the competition was to fly from New York City to Paris nonstop. And he thought, I can have a go at this. So he applied for a bank loan, he lent some money off from other people, and he designed a plane that was specifically built to try and do this non-stop flight for the first time. And it was called the Spirit of St. Louis. And the idea is that he was going to fly this on his own without what we've got in modern day technology, and also to do better than six people who had already died trying this thing. Now, um, he left on the 20th of May at 7.52 a.m. Took him 33 hours. He had to do it all by intuition. He arrived to 150,000 people in Paris then. Became a massive advocate of the aviation industry and led to the influx of people probably flying by air. He was even given the Congressional Medal of Honor for it. That's why he was famous in the 1920s, as you asked me to talk about. Well done, Mr. Lawton. So that's your 90-second challenge on Charles Lindbergh. And you're absolutely right. I think one of the things um, that I did mention last week, I did, I did kind of specify why he became this American hero, why he was so famous in the 1920s. Possibly, I think it's fair to say, he was like one of the first real kind of celebrities. He, um, he actually was the first ever Time magazine person of the year yeah, as I'm well. So it's something that we're all very familiar with these days, um, notable celebrities getting that accolade. But he was the first one ever in history to get that. Um, but he was also, he was a massive Nazi sympathizer. He, uh, he actually advocated uh, for America staying out of the war, um, the Second World War I'm on about here. Um, he actually said that England was lost. He actually said that there's no point in risking American lives. He actually helped set up an America First group um, which was a very much a right-wing leaning group. And he was one of the main people behind a gathering of 20,000 Americans in Madison Square Garden. And when I say 20,000 Americans, they were actually known as uh, the American Nazis. And this was their massive rally in Madison Square Garden in 1939, the start of World War II. Mm. And um, yeah, we've seen some of it. Uh, some of these things in the news quite recently for history to replicate itself today with Nazi salutes um, 
around Donald Trump's election campaigns and things like that, and people marching in different parts of America. It's uh, yeah. So this American hero was a massive Nazi. That's the, and that's the interesting thing about Lindbergh is that he was such the golden poster boy in the 1920s. He was this. He was seen as this. Uh, you know, incredible, uh, incredible achievement. You know, doing something that nobody had done before, and doing something that pretty much everyone else who attempted to do it did it as a team, like with two or three people trying to fly at the same time. He said, "I'm just going to do it by myself." Um, and as you said in the 90 second challenge, he did it with um, no, this is not without radar, without any kind of. Uh, he had a map kind of on his lap. Yeah, he, he took like his ham sandwiches with him, and he landed exactly where he said he was going to land. Um, but then, of course, the, the story of Lindbergh takes such a dark and sinister turn. And it's therefore it's become this kind of slightly weird thing now that people don't really know what to do at the end. They can't really look at him in the same way that they did do before. And uh, also, Mr. Patterson, you you mentioned a little bit earlier before we started recording about the Lindbergh baby. Well, yeah. So not only is he this kind of uh, heroic pilot and terrifying Nazi, but also he's a sort of tragic father. So his um, kid. So this is like the most famous man in America. Um, he he has a son, I think it's a son, the Lindbergh baby, um, who is basically kidnapped and never found. Um, or they do, they find the body, don't they, eventually? Yeah, they do. Um, but his, yeah, his kid is kidnapped and it becomes this huge manhunt for this child and um, the people that sort of kidnapped him. I mean, his, his child was kidnapped only about three or four years after the successful flight. So he was still at the, like, the peak of his fame. And this is before it all started to go a little bit Nazi. You know, he was like the most celebrated figure in America and his baby was snatched out of the bedroom window and it became a media sensation. And obviously there was incredible sympathy for the family at the time. And there was always a bit of a shape. I mean, the, 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 the story around the trial of the guy who was eventually captured and charged for the kidnapping and murder or, you know, uh, the death of the child. Um, it was it was all very murky, and, and even today there's been a lot of questions about did he do it or was he kind of a fall guy? Was he a scapegoat? Did the police just need someone to pin it on? Um, but it, yeah, what a fascinating life and a life that kind of gives so much. And we've turned this ninety second challenge into about five minutes talking about Charles Lindbergh. Well, well the thing is, if you if you want to go and see the Spirit of St. Louis in the Smithsonian Museum in uh, the Air and Aviation one, I think it is, or Aerospace or whatever it's called, but the Smithsonian Museum in Washington, D.C. I've been to that museum. Uh, I've seen the Spirit of St. Louis. Spirit of St. Louis is great. The rest of the museum is a little bit rubbish. Uh, the guy there once said you could get around the entire Washington DC for a buck a piece is what he said to us. It's uh, it's got a, it's also got the Wright brothers plane in there, I believe as well. So it's a bunch of, a bunch of old planes essentially. Um, right then. Thank you, Mr. Lawton. Well done. Um, and we'll return next time with uh, another 90 second challenge. But first we need to find out if uh, what the next challenge will be and who's going to get it. So then seeing that I've had to do the 90 second challenge this week and somebody hasn't actually turned up this week, I'm going to pick on them. And Mr. DeSalvo, I'm going to challenge you to tell us all about anthropogenic climate change. So I would like you to tell us about anthropogenic climate change. Okay, thank you for that. Um, join us next time for the 90 second challenge. How long do we have? How long do we have? Ninety. How long do we need? How long do we have? How long do we have? Ninety seconds. Ninety seconds. What a challenge. We're at the end of part three now. We're back in a few seconds with part four.
Welcome back to part four. It is Geography Corner. Welcome back to Geography Corner, everybody. So after the last three weeks of looking at inequality, I thought it was best to go back to some golden things and try and think a little bit more positively about the world. So uh, Mr. Eichelstrom delivered uh, my topic areas with some... Uh, real disdain for the sound of them in terms of them being theories but these are theories that underpin a lot of the actual more eventful things in our lives at the moment so i'm going to start with sustainable development sustainable development being one of the main theories that is in geography all the way from uh, primary school all the way up to your degree level and beyond so where does sustainable development come from as a notion well really it owes a lot to uh, Gro Harlem Brundtland um, she was a former prime minister of Norway um, she then chaired the United Nations World Commission on the Environment and Development in our common future um, which was known as the Brundtland Report in 1987 um, she came up with this phrase which is still repeated today known as meeting the needs of today without compromising the needs of future generations to meet their own. Now, this sort of phrase is something that underpins the entire of the theory and everything else. Obviously, when we have one of those like soundbite phrases, um, when, when we start to unpick it and find out, well, what does that actually mean? Well, I always like to, inside the classroom, think of it as if we go shopping at the weekend and we get our big shopping, you go and buy a load of snacks, you go and get your biscuits, you go and get your chocolate. And then on Sunday, because I've gone out and got my big shop on the Saturday, I'm stuck around the home and I think, you know what, I'm going to just nibble away at those snacks and I'm going to eat them all. And then before I know it, they are all gone and I go back to the cupboard and that's it for the week. Now that's really unsustainable. They haven't lasted. For my needs tomorrow, for my needs on Tuesday, for my needs on Thursday, I will have nothing left for myself. And if I was to go on Sunday and just have a couple of biscuits, a little bit of chocolate, and save some for tomorrow, what I'm doing there is being sustainable. I'm making my resources last into the future. And that's the basic notion of what sustainability is. And it's held up by three pillars. You've got the social aspects, the economic aspects, and the environmental aspects. For those of you at A-level, you'll know that we start to draw upon the political aspects of sustainability as well, because politics underpins everything. So for all that good work you do in citizenship year 10, it actually feeds into every part of life that you actually uh, know and love. So with this idea, you've got social, environmental, economic aspects of the world, and you want all of them to be in balance, to be truly sustainable, all three areas have to survive into the future. They have to be almost long-term in the way you think about them. If you only meet social and economic parts, you're equitable. You're able to be equitable about your future. If it's economic and environmental you say that you are viable about the future and if it's social and environmental you would say it's bearable in terms of its development now really what we want is that middle point where all three are upheld and this is when we would see true equality we would see the environment being protected, we would see life expectancies go up, and we would see countries and the happiness of the people just be better for the future. So the actual notion 
of sustainable development is one of everybody on the planet having a better future. And that's where the title of Brundtland's original report, Our Common Future, comes from. And it links to the idea that really, even though we're our own separate countries, even though we're our own separate states, we're on one planet together, we are part of one system We've got to really think about it all. Now, many of you will know Greta Thunberg and her amazing speeches that she does and the ridicule she experiences from the press. Sustainable development sometimes is laughed at as being a theory which can't really achieve. Now, we know that there are positives. People will get high standards of living. Um, they could prevent a resource crisis. We'll all have water and oil and electricity for the future. Um, it will make everybody equal. It will make people just understand that there are needs on a larger scale than just themselves. It will stop them from being selfish. But the people who are really downtrodden, the people who go after Greta, the people who go after this theory, really would say that if we look at the president of Brazil, he typifies this, you would actually restrict the development of countries who have yet to industrialize, those who have been unable to use all their resources, like the UK was to go into the ground and take out the coal and burn it in the industrial revolution. And now we turn around and say, you're not being sustainable. They find that almost hypocrisy. They find it hypocritical of it. And it's not fair. Um, it's also difficult to implement this universally. For those of you in year 12, you'll know that Antarctica Nobody lives there, so it's separated up, and the Antarctic Treaty was put in place. But people overstep the boundaries with that. And when people have got their own individual interests as countries, people struggle to see this overall. Look at the United States. They've withdrawn from the Paris Accord. They've uh, withdrawn from the Paris uh, Accord in uh, 2015, where they had agreed for, to reduce their carbon emissions. And they said, no, this isn't fair on us. And they've withdrawn that they're underneath the Trump administration. Perfectly legitimate, it's their right. Other countries didn't sign up as well. And sustainability has become a buzzword that people think is quite vague. Actually, it's not vague at all. It just covers a lot of areas. And when something is so big, that's when people struggle to understand it. We've come across this notion before when you have billionaires, you struggle to account for how much that actually is compared to when you have millionaires. The words make them sound like they're similar, but they're completely different in terms of wealth. So sustainable development is one of those key, key theories that end up underpins a lot of things that we do inside geography. Um, Mr. Lawton, I mean, just picking up on a couple of things there, I wonder if you could start by telling us about your own shopping habits. I mean, biscuits and chocolate every day is that something that's quite normal in the Lawton household for those of you uh, who pay attention to me at Bower, uh, you know that I do like a narcissism round in my questions and you pay attention to me uh, uh, I consume and inhale a diet coke every day I am really unsustainable with my diet coke so two days ago I went into my big shop first time I've been for a big shop in two weeks and I bought four liters of diet coke uh, there's currently zero milliliters left of diet coke in this right. flat um yeah i i could easily go out and buy another uh, another couple now yeah it's it's a bad bad habit that's the same reason why i never allow biscuits in the house because they as much as i you know i'd like to have a couple of three with a cup of tea every day you buy a packet of biscuits those biscuits are not seeing the end of that day uh, and also what do you kind of see as the the future of sustainability in terms of in this the, the world that we live in now with your trump's and I think, is it Bolsano, the president of um, Brazil, 
do you think we is there a prospect that we could come closer together on questions of sustainability and and you know even even bigger things like climate change i guess but or is it are we going are we diverging um can i just say that uh sustainability we shouldn't think of it as something that's appeared since the 1980s with bruntland bruntland just articulated it in a way that westerners people in the developed world could actually um use and publicize inside their uh, charity campaigns and refer to a lot of the time and it's something that in the wider public people can relate to there have been civilizations and practices that have had sustainability underpin them since the dawn of man um every tribal society inside the world today found in the deep dark parts of the rainforest the inuit communities uh, those of native americans in the northern uh, parts of america they eskimos uh, if you're thinking who are they uh, kids um so those people are living sustainably they're living within their means they are not overusing the resources they have in making sure that they're living with the world and that sounds very hippie-ish and people can't buy into that following the 1970s after the hippie stereotype had been formed and people could kind of turn their nose upon it the Brunton report provided an opportunity for it to almost be sustainability and now arrived in a suit and everybody could respect it so where do i see it in the future it will always be there in some way shape or form unfortunately i think it'll be ngos non-governmental organizations that will carry the the flame forward for it for a while and um, we're going through a period of nationalism again a period of um, countries being separate on their own and when you've got a theory which is based upon a global common the planet being one as a whole um, that doesn't work in tandem at all yeah i think that's a fair point is like yeah international organizations um are the only ones if they if anyone is going to i suppose be able to bring some kind of collective response to uh, or vision of, of sustainability it's only going to be uh, internationalism that that does that um so on, on that note i think we come to the end um of uh, part four we'll be back in just a few moments with part five So welcome back to part five. It is language liaison when we uh, take a, a trip uh, overseas. Um, well, not really, of course, we can't do that at the moment. Um, but take a trip overseas to uh, speak to um, a very special uh, guest today. He's usually with us live in the virtual studio. Um, Mr. DeSalvo. Um, hello, Mr. DeSalvo. Hi, Mr. DeSalvo. You all right, sir? Buenos dias. Right, hello everybody. For this week, um, I've decided to talk about role models. I mean, this is something that our year 10s study at the beginning of the first term, um, so during the autumn term, and uh, it's actually quite uplifting to you know, notice that over the years, a lot of our students, um, well, a lot of you students, decided to um, share who your role models have and a lot of the time actually um, I must admit that you choose a member of your family or a friend which is really heartwarming um, but today I want to talk about some um, celebrities that you might know of and some you might not know about too much and um, why, why they're famous but you know um, and what they do uh, apart from probably their main job for which we know them 
Um, I've got a few more for um, the Spanish-speaking um, sort of countries. And I wanted to start with a lady um, called Ellen um, Ochoa. And uh, she's probably the um, least young of the ones I'm going to mention today. Uh, she was born in 1958, but she is actually um, an American engineer um, who is of Hispanic origin. But she is, um, she was marked when she was in school for um, liking science and, um, you know, although she experienced some, you know, resistance, um, resistance, nothing stopped her from achieving her dreams um, of becoming an astronaut. So she's now Dr. Ellen Ochoa and um, she's actually the first Hispanic woman to ever go into space. Um, she's also an inventor, a mother and a mentor for um, young girls. Um, so I suppose you know, perhaps um, she wasn't she wasn't cool um, at the time, and she was going up against stereotypes. But um, she's now one of the most obviously well regarded astronauts in her um, field. Um, another woman that I want to talk about that you might um, know because of the TV series um, Ugly Betty um, is America Ferreira. Um, she um, basically has had an opportunity to um, work obviously in the film industry but um, with a lot of um, attention to the fact that because she's not your typical sort of super slim and um, you know a top model style actress and um, she's been able to do a lot of campaigning about real beauty and also um you know trying to get people to like themselves you know uh, for you know the shade that they are you know and a more kind of curvy figure that she has certainly um you know goes well not against but it's not really your typical um sort of top model or top actress uh, body so um america ferrera has actually um you know with her work um you know put a spotlight on um this um distorted uh, perception that we have obviously of um beauty um so other people that i wanted to mention today um are shakira Shakira from uh, Colombia, so another Spanish-speaking country. Um, we know that Shakira's, you know, is a famous singer. She's had, you know, countless awards, um, but she's probably less famous for her tireless charity work. Um, as a United Nations Children's Fund um, Goodwill Ambassador, for example, Shakira set up a, a foundation called the Barefoot Foundation in 1997, um, which aims to... Um, help poverty stricken children in Colombia and it's also looking at expanding um, its effort to other nations um, and thanks to this charity Shakira managed to get um, what to fund uh, several schools um, which have been able to open and um, and she didn't stop at that actually if Shakira is also uh, part of the um, the Wing Foundation um, Latin America in, solida in Solidary Action. Um, it's a bit of a long name, I'm afraid, but this charity, which was launched in Panama, um, is aiming to provide educational and nutritional programs uh, for malnourished and poverty-stricken children across um, Latin America and the Caribbean. Um, other 
famous, you know, Spanish-speaking celebrities are Ricky Martin, um, who's probably not as famous these days. He certainly was when I was a little bit younger, uh, who's very known for his charity to help, um, you know, raise awareness, but also stop human trafficking. And then you got Antonio Banderas, who is a director, but also an actor, who's done a lot of work for um, the environment. And um, there is the Pope, our current Pope, who is from Argentina, obviously he's doing a lot of, um, you know, work for, um, well, towards removing slavery and, um, you know, fighting uh, prostitution. And one thing that I would encourage everybody to do is actually um, look up, most of these people have a, you know, a Twitter account or an Instagram account. And apart from the, um, you know, amazing work that they conduct, and I'm sure that they post some really great photos as well, I think, um, you know, there is there an opportunity to look at the language content because a lot of the time they will tweet also in Spanish. So um, have a look at those um, if you um, have time. Um, To finish off with the Spanish-speaking ones, actually, I wanted to mention um, Angela Maria Ponce Camacho. Um, She's a Spanish model and uh, beauty pageant uh, who won uh, Miss Universe Spain 2018. Um, she made history because she was the first openly transgender woman to be crowned um, Miss Spain. Um, so, yeah, sorry, she didn't win Miss Universe 2018, um, but she um, obviously competed as she was crowned Miss Spain. For what um, we got for the French-speaking celebrities, we got fewer for that. Um, and um, one of the my favourite anyway, actresses, but also, um, you know, women um, of kind of, let's say, you know, um, who does a lot of work is um, Marion Cotillard. Um, She was very, um, she's still, um, you know, very famous in France and around the world. And you'll have seen her in French um, movies, but also in internationally, you know, acclaimed films. Uh, she was the singer Edith Piaf in uh, the film La Vie en Rose, uh, which is a very long film, actually, but really worth watching. Um, Marion Cotillard has won several Academy Awards, BAFTA Awards, one Golden Globe. Um, she was also in Inception with Leonardo DiCaprio, if you've seen that. And she's also been the voice acting um, in the Minions movie, obviously for the French version. Um, Marion Cotillard is also famous for her major work with uh, Greenpeace, but also um, to raise awareness about autism. And um, um, so there is uh, Marion Cotillard. And I wanted to mention also um, another actress that people might know, and her name is Emma Mackey. I know her name sounds very English, but she's actually half um, British and half French. So dad's English and mum's French. Uh, She was born in France. And uh, she's very famous because she's the main actress in uh, sex education. And she's also an active feminist. So working towards, you know, recognition of women's uh, rights and equality. So um, I will stop here for this week because I know I've sort of gone on for um, over eight minutes. Um, But yeah, I would encourage everybody to have a look at these celebrities and perhaps have a look at whether you want to follow them on Instagram, Twitter or any other social media to see what they 
you know, say what they post and what kind of other, you know, lovely work they are involved in. Okay. And, um, you know, I can, you know, can't wait to speak to you all next week. Okay. Bye. Oh, thank you so much for that, Mr. DeSalvo. That was great as ever. Uh, loved it. Um, uh, we'll speak to you soon. I'm sure we'll see you uh, next week. Um, good to speak to you, sir. Ciao. See ya. And that brings us to the end of uh, part five. And it brings us to the end of the, the show this week. So thank you so much uh, for listening along. And um, hopefully it's helped you out with your work in history, geography and languages this week. Congratulations to Mr. Patterson for a, a resounding victory in Mysterious Country. I will be back, as Arnie said. Um, so it was good to speak to you, Mr. Lawton. Yeah, I love to speak to you all again. Stay safe. Stay alert. And uh, I'll, I'm sure I'll speak to you again soon, Mr. Patterson. Yep, thank you. All right, bye, folks. Look after yourselves. Um, speak to you all soon. And there we go. There we go.